Good morning and welcome to this Euractiv online event, which is kindly supported by PKEE, the Polish Electricity Industry Association. My name is Frédéric Simon, I'm the Energy and Environment Editor of Euractiv, and I will be your host for today's event, which is titled Energy Poverty, How to Reduce Inequalities. Now, today's event on energy poverty comes in the midst of a global surge in energy prices, a situation which is causing concern, especially in the east of the European Union, where the standard of living is generally lower and where energy poverty is a cause of national concern. So where do we stand when it comes to addressing energy poverty in the European Union? And how does the Commission's Fit for 55 package of energy and climate laws can help reduce inequalities to discuss this topic today? I have the pleasure of welcoming Mrs. Adela Tesarova, Head of Unit for Consumers, Local Initiatives and the Just Transition at the European Commission's DG Energy. Mr. Niels Fultsang, a Danish MEP who is also a rapporteur on the Energy Efficiency Directive in the European Parliament. He'll be joining us in a few minutes. Baiba uh, Miltovica, she's rapporteur for the Renovation Wave in the European Economic and Social Committee. Dimitri Vergne from BERC, the EU consumer organization. Masha Spirnova from Eurocities. And Pavel Sjosh, vice president at the Polish electricity company PGE Group who will be speaking on behalf of PKEE. Now, welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us today. We'll start this virtual conference with a series of short opening statements from the speakers and then we'll move on to a Q&A session that will also include questions from the audience. To put a question to the panelists, uh, simply use the uh, right-hand side of your screen, the chat function showing up there and we will take uh, questions uh, directly from there. I think that's all for me, uh, but before we get to the opening statements from the speakers, let me first give the floor to Mr. Pavel Sjosh from PGE, because he has to leave us afterwards. Mr. Sjosh, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Energy poverty uh, is a very complex issue uh, because many factors have a great impact on it, such as uh, energy prices, economic situation of citizens, uh, energy efficiency, as well as weather conditions. Um, in case of Poland, uh, long and quiet severe winters, like now, and relatively high share of people with low income who live in buildings with a low energy performance, cause that this issue is very significant. Uh, but rising energy prices are a common problem for the whole European Union and the level of challenge varies across member states. Uh, high energy prices for the final consumer play a big role when it comes to energy poverty. This is why the Fit for 55 package should not only enable uh, the achievement uh, of new European climate targets, uh, but also mitigate the negative effect that proposed changes will have on the consumer's bills. Mm, 
In the case of the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, ener energy expenditure already exceeds 20% of the household uh, budget. And in the case of uh, Romania, Hungary and Bulgaria, it is around 15%. The solutions adopted must not drive energy consumers into poverty. Um, if a transformation of electricity and heating sectors is not designed in the most cost-efficient way, and appropriate amount of EU funds is not ensured, energy companies have to increase energy prices uh, to secure funds for new investments. Nevertheless, the price increases must take into account the social impacts and should be introduced gradually. This is why a reasonable pace towards uh, climate neutrality which reflects national conditions is of a crucial importance. Uh, especially now, uh, when electricity and gas prices in the EU are very, very, very high, additional burdens cannot be imposed uh, in an unbalanced manner. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, the costs are uh, borne by consumers. The social acceptance for a transition and respect for the rule no one is left behind is now crucial as never before. Therefore, the Polish Electricity Association's members are concerned about some proposals uh, from the Fit for 55 package, which in our opinion do not reflect properly different starting points of member states toward climate neutrality. Uh, I will mention uh, two examples. Firstly, uh, the EU ETS directive, which does not resolve the pertaining issue of imbalances in some member states, which do not receive uh, that are equivalent to the cost borne by the EU ETS covered installations. Uh, this imbalance translates into 40 billion euro that the Polish companies would transfer uh, abroad as a, as a result of the imbalance and hence finance the energy transition of other countries. The European Commission further deepens this issue through the proposals aiming at the cap tightening, such as through the proposed changes within the MSR framework. Also, uh, we argue that the issue of the role uh, the financial institutions play of the UETS markets leading to the speculation and, in consequences, further unpredictable surge in the UETS price has not been properly acknowledged by the Commission. Uh, secondly, uh, a district heating. New, very strict rules for efficient district heating systems proposed without reasonable period to adjust investment plans, as well as the exclusion of natural gas fired high efficiency cogeneration plants from the scope of the modernization fund might, in practice, impede transformation of heating sector in countries like Poland. Um, natural gas-based cogeneration in district heating systems is the only 
viable and available solution due to specific weather condition as well as the high capacities and temperature parameters required in dense urban uh, areas, which rules out the wider use of the heat pumps. The use of renewables and large-scale district heating system is limited, especially taking into account that biomass supply will be further limited due to the biomass sustainability criteria. Uh, an increase in the burden, including taxation, on natural gas should be avoided as the impacts on the shift to low-carbon fuels. The European Green Deal is a huge and ambitious program, which will, without a doubt, bring many benefits, but also cause additional costs. The impact assessment underpinning the 2030 climate target plan found that an increase of the 2030 emission target to minus 55% rises the energy-related household expenditure. As the answer, the Commission has proposed the creation of the Social Climate Fund. This is a step in the right direction. However, uh, a size of the fund might not be enough to resolve the issue of energy poverty and properly respond to the social challenges related to the proposed extension of the UETS to buildings and uh, transport sectors. To alleviate social impacts of energy price, increased governments introduce various mechanisms dedicated mostly to uh, sensitive to defense laws households. However, we need European solutions as well. I believe that the special report prepared, prepared by the Euroactive and today's event will be an important contribution to discussion about funding, a good solution which will enable mitigation of energy poverty and ensure that transition is really just and inclusive. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Sjoz, uh, for giving us uh, this uh, opening statement, um, and uh, we wish you a, a pleasant rest of the day. Now, uh, let me turn to our uh, next uh, speaker uh, for uh, the opening statements, and uh, that is Mrs. Adela Tesarova from the European Commission. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I would suggest that um, I think that the, the first should be the parliament to start here. I don't think uh, I have the, the priority in the order of uh, the speakers. Thank you. Um, sorry, Mrs. Uh, Tesarova. Um... Okay. The Commission never speaks before the Parliament, and we have the ECOSOC here as well, so I thought I'm, I'm the bureaucratic representative here. I mean, happy to speak, of course, but I don't think this is the right order. of. Um, so, yeah, I can say that, of course, for the Commission, uh, the energy poverty is, is an important topic. Uh, in the current, uh, current uh, high-price environment, this, of course, uh, became even more topical, and uh, the Commission... Um, with its toolbox, um, made it very clear that um, 
any impact on, on vulnerable and energy poor households in the current context, but also in general addressing energy poverty is of course something that has to be addressed at all levels, member states level, EU level and, and local level. Um, uh, from the from the commission side, uh, we have um, in, we have included a lot of um, energy poverty support, like let's say, a lot of measures which are supporting uh, eradication of energy poverty in the Fit for 55 package. Um, some of them were uh, mentioned by Mr. Uh, Toch, um, in particular the Social Climate Fund, um, uh, but also the Energy Efficiency Directive. Um, contains a priority measures to push for energy savings among, um, among uh, vulnerable energy poor uh, households and households living in social housing. So that's a big priority in the Energy Efficiency Directive. Um, and of course, um, the rest of the package, making available renewable energies uh, to, um, to households or let's say uh, pushing for people activation and, and uh, um, let's say emancipation of consumers away from fossil fuels, all this is contributing to addressing energy poverty at its core. Um, because of course, energy poverty is a pre-existing problem. Uh, we want to avoid that uh, decarbonization makes this problem worse. That's why the Fit for 55 package has all these social measures included, especially the Social Climate Fund. Um, but in uh, you know, in principles, energy poverty is a pre-existing problem. It is linked to inability of people to pay fossil fuel bills. And of course, moving away from fossil fuels is a way how to eradicate energy poverty, uh, helping people insulate their houses so that they don't have big energy bills and helping people install renewables, helping communities install renewables is the way forward. Uh, because if people don't are not dependent on fossil fuels, we will not have energy poverty. So thank you very much. That will be a, just a short introduction from my side. Thank you. Thanks, Mrs. Uh, Tesorova. And uh, uh, apologies uh, for earlier. I didn't uh, quite um, uh, got your, your first uh, remark. Uh, turning now to Niels Fulsang um, from uh, European Parliament. All right. Thank you very much, Frédéric. Um, and uh, thank you to to uh, the European Commission and PKEE um, for their interventions. I think uh, obviously energy poverty is, is an extremely important um, topic. We need to do a green transformation, but we need to do it in, in a socially just way. And I believe uh, also as a social democrat that if you don't do it uh, in a socially just way, you will have no green transition at all. I mean, I think we've seen examples of that in different places of Europe, France most prominently, where you had uh, the Yellow Wests uh, protesting uh, against um, climate policies because the climate policies um, had a socially unjust profile and um, had the consequence that uh, some people could not afford energy, they could not afford energy for their cars, um, and they had difficulties uh, to basically um, have a budget that uh, you know could hold and could uh, could function, and so um, so that put them in a very very unfortunate situation. So I think if we are to do the green transition, and we are, that's a 
that's a must. Um, we need to do it in a socially uh, just way. Um, how do we do that then? Well, I think that um, I agree with the European Commission here that we need to go, of course, away from fossil fuels. I think we've seen with the energy crisis, um, with the spiking energy prices, I don't know if we want to call it a crisis or not, uh, but it is certainly a, a crisis for some people. We have 34 million households in Europe who have difficulties paying their energy bills. Um, and with, in this situation, I think what we need to, to do is really to become energy independent. Make sure that we don't, we're not dependent on importing fossil fuels, gas, oil from other parts of the world. Uh, the energy, uh, the spike in energy prices is to a very large degree caused by the spike in gas prices. We import this gas from Russia and other places. Um, if we can manage to actually become energy independent uh, by increasing our own renewable energy, by expanding our offshore wind energy, for example, uh, and at the same time um, becoming more energy efficient, um, so we basically use less energy by insulating our buildings better, by using our waste heat from data centers, for example, um, in, a, in a better way. Um, then we can actually save money, we can, we can reduce the energy bills uh, and at the same time obviously uh, spark the, the green transition or you know really boost the green transition and that's what we need. I think it's great that we have a climate law, uh, it says at least 55% reductions of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 compared to 1990. That's a step in the right direction. However, we also know, if you read the UN climate panels, uh, climate reports, 55% uh, is not enough, actually. We, we need to do more than that. So I'm paying attention to that we've written at least, at least 55%. And I think the legislation on the Energy Efficiency Directive and on the Renewable Energy Directive and all the other Fit for 55 files, they should reflect that we really need, uh, I mean, this is the time we cannot postpone action any longer. If we, as politicians, this time, the politicians who have the mandate this time, and the commissioners who have the mandate this time, if they, after their mandates, mandate says, all right, so um, we didn't get uh, to do what we needed to do, like, the, like in the past, uh, you know, we, we're gonna have to postpone things because it has just been too difficult then the Paris Agreement, then the one and a half degrees target, target to limit global warming to the maximum one and a half degrees, then that's not gonna happen. So we have a huge responsibility right now. And, um, and I, I agree here with the commission that we need uh, to go away from fossil fuels and we need to increase energy efficiency. And that's why I think it's right, um, it's right that the European Commission is raising, proposing to raise the price on carbon in the ETS and is proposing in the energy efficiency directive to basically say energy, energy efficient heating systems and energy, energy efficient solutions should not include fossil fuels. I think it is um, not a good favor to, to vulnerable people to have a policy where you, um, where you basically 
make them dependent on fossil fuels for any longer than they need to. We have a lot of the solutions on renewable energy and that's what that's the solutions that we need to, to use to both solve the climate crisis and the energy crisis. Uh, that will be my opening statement. I'm looking very much forward to the debate with you. Thanks, Mr. Folsang. And let me turn now to Baiba Miltovica from the European Economic and Social Committee. Good morning. I hope you can hear me well and I, I can uh, continue. I would like to uh, uh, thanks my, uh, how to say, cooperation partners uh, from the co uh, Commission and also the Parliament, uh, Adela uh, Tesserova and Nils uh, Fulksan. And um, you really mentioned something that, uh, that are reflecting the work that we do here in the Economic and Social Committee. Um, I, can, uh, I can agree that we need to have a green transition and why? Uh, because um, because if you look at international perspective, from international energy agency data, uh, in the Europe's energy mix uh, consists of 80% of fossil fuel and 20% of renewable energy. And if we want to move uh, in the energy, uh, in the European Green Deal, of course, we need to boost, we need to work more to exit from the fossil, uh, fossil fuels. But in the other side, there is society. I come uh, from a civil society perspective, uh, from the consumer organizations. Uh, I belong to consumer movement, uh, which is BIUK, European Consumer Organization Networks. And we work a lot even before the energy uh, prices uh, increased, we worked for many years on the energy poverty. And especially uh, there are instruments like um, Horizon 2020, and we work on the solutions to tackle energy poverty. We coordinate actions in different member states, and we see what is happening on the ground. And let me be very honest from the civil society organization's perspective, I can agree uh, that if you ask about how to reduce inequalities, we are talking about building stock. It's true. But we need to understand that society or citizens already faced with energy poverty before the price, uh, energy price crisis. But now they are suffering even more because average consumers are already looking at uh, this disbalanced situation in between the income and the growing and still growing because it's not a, it's not end of the story uh, this balanced situation and um, and situation is getting as I mentioned uh, more and more scarce and therefore uh, we need to find solutions and buildings are one of the solutions that we can do really but what we need for 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 promoting uh, these initiatives, like, uh, for example, Renovation Day for Europe, we really need all the financial instruments working in collaboration. Let me just mention that energy poverty is not at EU level. It's not at, it's not even at the member state level. It is at local level, at uh, at municipalities, uh, villages. Uh, uh, bigger or smaller cities and towns uh, and uh, and only at local level you see the real problems 
I would like to mention instruments that are, are available for municipalities and at local level. And we talk about national energy and climate plans. We talk about recovery and resilience plans. And actually they need to work together, together with social climate fund and many other instruments that member states also have. But sometimes if you read these documents from the consumer uh, organization perspective, you don't see these linkages and you don't see the focus. And uh, we don't have much time now, actually, uh, because we need to do our homework uh, with the energy uh, stock in the European Union. I would like to mention that I represent a section that is dedicated to transport, energy, infrastructure and information society. We are 107 members uh, in this uh, section of working on various uh, various opinions, referrals from the Commission and also Council. And Renovation Wave for Europe was one of the flagship initiatives uh, in this year. And I need to mention my colleagues because I'm not working alone. As I mentioned, 107 uh, representatives. I need to mention a colleague from France, uh, Pierre-Jean Coulon, working with me. I need to mention also a colleague from Romania, Laurentio Plasciano working with me, and many, many others. And they were particularly dedicated attention to Renovation Wave for Europe. Of course, we are continuing and there are many, many new uh, initiatives uh, that are related to the current situation. Uh, for example, opinion on energy prices, um, as uh, we heard uh, from the Commission, uh, from the Parliament now, uh, also a renewable energy uh, directive and many others that need to have this linkage and to see, to focus on the local level citizen, that we need to uh, find the ways how to better serve local citizens, because obviously the system that we created so far with uh, renovation of the buildings and residential buildings, I mean, it doesn't work. Because if you see the renovation rates in every member state, they are less than seven or five percent. So it's very slow. It's very uh, long lasting process. So we need to boost all these instruments so that citizens uh, at local level and also municipalities can help uh, citizens to renovate their residential buildings. Um, and, and this would be my, my main package, uh, my, my, my main message. And I would like to say also that Fit for 55 package have many instruments that we can use in order to boost this uh, assistance and boost the, the, this help. Thank you very much. And uh, I give a floor to the next speaker and I'm really pleased to be here in, uh, in your active uh, event. Thanks, Baiba uh, Miltovica. And so let me turn to Dimitri Vergne now from BEOC, the EU Consumer Organization. Thank you very much, Frédéric, and uh, thanks for, for having us on this panel. Well, Baiba said it very clearly, uh, as consumer groups, we, we, we focus a lot on energy, uh, on energy poverty. It's, um, it has been a priority for us uh, way before the energy prices surge, which makes the issue uh, much more problematic, uh, as was uh, clearly said by previous speakers. The point I'd like to make maybe um, in this um, introductory remarks is um, about the way 
we approach the problem. Um, you know, too often, and that's an important discussion to have because, um, you know, th this will be an important discussion uh, between the European Parliament and the Council, uh, notably, uh, notably in the context of the discussion on the Energy Efficiency Directive. Um, too often, the problem, uh, the issue of energy poverty is approached as a social policy issue. And our point as consumer groups, or our, our approach, and Baiba said it uh, already, um, is that the issue of energy poverty is first and foremost an infrastructural systemic problem or issue of our energy system, which has negative social consequences. And this point is important to make, and it's more than mere semantics, because um, depending on the way you look at it from the social lens or from this energy system infrastructural lens uh, this will define of course the solution and the measures that you will uh, take to tackle the issue and by um, the problem with an approach which is um, uh, concentrating first on the social policy is that probably you will never really tackle the root causes of energy poverty. For instance, you will, uh, through social policy, lump sum payments, mitigate the most negative impacts for, for, for energy poor consumers, but without really giving them a long-term perspective and solving the problem um, as it, at, at, at its root. And so I think that's the whole discussion we were having at the moment and that we need to have. Um, uh, we need to work, uh, especially um, in relation to the Fit for 55 package, on the root causes of energy poverty. And there I'd say, you know, to pick up on what Pavel said at the beginning, um, I'd say we don't think that the Fit for 55 package is a risk to increase energy poverty. What we think is, the, rather the opposite, the Fit for 55 package is the nice, the best opportunity we have to tackle the, the causes of energy poverty. So we need to accelerate the renovation wave. We need to look at, uh, to move away from uh, fossil fuels, which are more expensive than electricity, for instance, to heat our homes. Um, uh, we also need to look at every possible measure under the energy efficiency directive, which, um, which targets especially um, energy poor people, um, and and that's the best way we'll have to um, to 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 tackle energy poverty. Um, I, I'll stop here, but I, I hope we'll have the occasion to to enter a bit more in details on the different measures we uh, we we need to have. For sure, Dimitri, uh, we will come back to that, of course, uh, during the uh, Q and A session that will follow. Uh, now, to close the round of opening statements, let me turn to Marsha Smirnova from Eurocities. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Frédéric. It's an honor to be here with you today. Um, I would like to bring also the view from the perspective of cities uh, and uh, local authorities uh, in respect to tackling energy poverty, maybe also with some uh, practical examples. So uh, uh, what many speakers already have said that energy poverty is a multidimensional phenomenon and it cannot be tackled in isolation. This is a very fundamental issue at local level and in cities where two-thirds of EU population lives, but also where most uh, greenhouse gas emissions are produced. And that means that decarbonization strategies need to address energy, transport, buildings, 
while also taking citizens on board and ensuring social equity. So yes, it is not as, uh, just merely a social policy, as also Dmitry said, but it also needs to translate very uh, policies across those uh, different sectors. So depending on the competences that local governments have in this domain, um, cities actually very often look to combine social and energy policies. For instance, by supporting energy retrofit schemes, setting up one-stop shops for energy efficiency solutions, providing renovation support for vulnerable households. Um, some cities even go further. We have just conducted a survey of um, uh, climate adaptation measures and support measures in the context of the upward revision of the 2030 targets. Um, uh, and we interviewed uh, 55 cities and about a fifth of them also provide direct debt relief from energy bills uh, to uh, vulnerable groups. So against the background of the recast of the Energy Efficiency Directive that recognizes very much the key role of public authorities and the upcoming revision of the Energy Performance of Biddings Directive, it is clear that the energy transition represents a key opportunity to improve access to better quality housing if, and this is a big if, renovation costs are balanced as much as possible with energy savings and security of tenure is also ensured. So uh, local governments cannot do it uh, by themselves. Of course, multi-level collaboration between EU, national, regional, and local levels, something also that um, um, uh, our colleagues from the commission mentioned is very important here. Um, so even if energy as such is not generally a competence of local authorities, in recent years, we can attest that their role has been growing. So we see also a democratization of energy, district heating networks, energy communities, which are all driven in part by local level. And those uh, measures can contribute simultaneously to key social and environmental objectives by increasing democratic decision making. So it is not about actually compensating people, but it's also uh, bringing something more empowering by really including the communities in the transition. Incentivize energy access to people at risk of social inclusion, contribute to energy sovereignty uh, and decarbonization objectives. As we talk, of course, about uh, renewable energy coming mostly from solar and wind. Um, so uh, against the background of the energy price hike, and it was already said before that it is uh, the, uh, our uh, dependency on fossil fuel uh, imports that got us here in the first place, there is really merit to uh, have such projects rolled out at much bigger scale. Uh, for example, the city of Amsterdam uh, has uh, uh, really doubled their solar panels each year. So it, between 2012 and 2019, it grew by 54%. The city of Prague supports 20,000 uh, uh, solar panels installations in residential buildings as part of the new climate plan. And um, uh, we were also very pleased to see that the Greek government has earmarked 100 million from the recovery and resilience facility to support those energy, for, uh, energy communities together with the municipalities in Greece. So in conclusion, uh, I just would like to go back to the uh, title of this debate, namely how to reduce uh, inequalities and taking the multidimensional character of poverty and inequality. We really know, and this is very visible from the, from the COVID situation, that a shock in one dimension, such as we have seen with health, has exacerbated all other forms of inequalities, including economic, social, gender inequalities within countries. 
Um, uh, it is also very concerning that the gap between the top of the wealth distribution and the rest of the population has widened dramatically during the pandemic. I really recommend to read the World Inequality Report that was authored with Thomas Piketty, which was released today, that also uh, documents 31% uh, uh, of total drop in global income that was recorded in Europe. Um, so next to the importance of the fiscal and redistributive policies, we think that the essential role of public services need to be strengthened to tackle inequalities, especially since we know that many of the social and environmental inequalities are intertwined. So in that respect, it is really key to recognize access to affordable and clean energy as a social right, which actually is the first target of SDG 7 and is reflected in the European pillar of social right, principle 20 on access to essential services. And with the ongoing deliberation on the future of the European fiscal rules, we really need to refocus on public investments for such fair services that bring together welfare provision with clean infrastructure and really consider them as an investment rather than as a cost that can be excluded from the debt criteria to really create the necessary leeway that we need for a sustainable transition that is inclusive for all. Thank you. Um, thanks, Ms. Uh, Smirnova. And so we can move on to uh, the panel discussion. Uh, but I see that Pavel Sjosh uh, is, in fact, uh, still with us. Uh, he hasn't left, contrary to uh, what I announced at the beginning. And uh, uh, Pavel, I believe you have some uh, final remark to make. Yes, because uh, I have to leave uh, our debate in uh, two minutes, but I would like to add um, one reflection. Uh, the biggest reason of uh, increasing uh, prices for electricity for, for, uh, for householders and consumers is the situation on the EU ETS uh, market. Um, because uh, when we uh, had discussion one year uh, ago, uh, the prices for allowances for CO2 emission uh, were on the level 25, 27 euros. Uh, analysis showed that uh, more than uh, 50, 55 euros per ton uh, will be reached on 2030. Now, after one year, uh, we have prices more than 80 euros per ton. And from uh, our point of view, for us, for Polish energy sector, uh, is the biggest problem. Is the biggest problem uh, because we spent uh, our internal money uh, from our budgets for, for CO2 um, permits, uh, not for, uh, for new uh, big investments in uh, RES. Of course, we have many programs uh, like PV, onshore and offshore on Baltic Sea, uh, but it's kind of a vicious cycle or close a circle. Uh, therefore, I, um, in my opinion, I think we should uh, wonder about uh, refreshing EU ETS system, uh, uh, new regulation and dedication uh, for, not for all, because we observe the uh, speculation on this market. So, so it's my uh, small reflection uh, on that and I think it's the uh, biggest problem. Problem at the end, of course, for uh, consumers and households. 
Thank you uh, for the uh, deba debate. I wish you fruitful uh, discussion. Thanks very much, uh, Pavel Siosh, and uh, we wish you a very pleasant rest of the day. Um, so, uh, going uh, back to the panel discussion, um, uh, as uh, Mr. Siosh was uh, making his uh, comments, Dimitri Verne, uh, we saw you um, shaking your head. Um, so, uh, maybe you would want to make a uh, reflection about how the ETS revision um, may help uh, when it comes to addressing uh, energy poverty, Mr. Schoss seems to believe there, there, there are opportunities there to, uh, to do something. Uh, thanks, Fadeg. Well, I, I shook my head, uh, head uh, respectfully, right? <laughs> respectfully disagreeing with what uh, Mr. Schoss was saying, because I think it has been looked into and the impact of ETS on the prices increases is, of course, non-negligible, but it's not it's re certainly not the main cause behind the price surges. The price surges is mostly caused by the uh, the high demand worldwide uh, for, um, for for gas, you know, and the worldwide uh, price increase of gas. So um, my, my my point would be, you know, um, let's not focus on the you know the wrong targets. You know, ETS for me is not the main main cause what we should look at instead if we want to find the right cure to this energy prices and energy poverty issue is really to uh, move away from fossil fuels again as uh, mr fulksang uh, made his point at the beginning and increase the renovation uh, rate of uh, of buildings regarding the ets reform um well on on the already existing ets it's not a topic we're uh, focusing on at, as consumer groups, we have been a bit worried about the extension, the proposed extension of ETS to road transport and buildings. Um, we were a bit skeptical about this, but now the proposal is there. And so we should probably work on all the accompanying measures such as the social climate fund uh, to make sure that really all the revenues go back to consumers um, and help them you know, escaping uh, energy poverty. Um, and I, I'd say as a complement, you know, it's not only about ETS revenues or you know, the social climate fund. It's also about all the sector specific legislation that can help achieving this objective. And for instance, in the energy efficiency directive, we need really, and, and the commission proposed that, um, uh, mandatory measures so that a minimum share of energy saving obligations or um, energy efficiency obligation schemes uh, will be targeted to energy pools uh, because that's the best way to um, to um, to to help people um, uh, move away from uh, from from uh, from this difficult situation. Thanks, Dimitri Verne. Uh, let me turn uh, maybe uh, on the same subject then to uh, Mr. Niels Fulsang, since you're a rapporteur on the Energy Efficiency Directive. Uh, what Dimitri Verne just uh, spoke about there, the uh, uh, suggestion that he's making to, to focus uh, more of the attention on, on vulnerable uh, households and, and consumers uh, when it comes to um, efforts made under the Energy Efficiency Directive. Uh, do you agree this is something uh, that uh, needs to be prioritized? Uh, and maybe also a word uh, about the ETS. 
Um, I mean, obviously, the existing ETS, the, the, the impact of speculation there is relatively small, but there is widespread concern about the extension or the creation of a new ETS uh, for buildings and transport. Uh, maybe you can say a few words on this, whether you share those concerns uh, or not. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, I agree with, um, with Dimitri that we certainly need to make sure in the Energy Efficiency Directive that a significant uh, share or a significant part of the effort is directed at the vulnerable people, uh, those who are energy poor. Um, because these are the people who who need, uh, I mean, to increase the energy efficiency in the in the houses where they live. For example, these are the people who need it the most because, uh, well, they don't have so much money. So if they can save something on the energy bill, if we can direct the effort to make better insulation, for example, at their homes, uh, it will have a lot of benefits for them. Uh, and on the, on, at the same time, these are the people, even though they, these are the people who need energy efficiency probably the most to pay the energy bill, uh, at the same time, these are the people who live often in buildings that are not well insulated, uh, that are old and that where the heat leaves very fast. I remember myself living in London uh, after high school with some friend, friends we didn't have so much money so we rented a cheap flat in south london um, where we it was impossible to keep it warm during the winter and the window was broken so um, the heat just left very early very fast uh, now i survived and uh, and uh, i was a young young man so i could probably deal with that but but if you have to live like that for many years that's that's not uh, that's not a good situ situation obviously so I agree with with um, with with that point of view. Um, when it comes to the ETS, well, I think uh, again uh, the discussion you just you just had. Um, I I think that uh, from the analysis that I've seen, the ETS, the rising ETS price is not uh, it's not the main cause of the rising energy prices. It is the gas. Uh, it is the surge in gas prices, basically. Uh, so I think it would be wrong to to uh, to blame the, the ETS. I think we we have gotten, of course, a higher ETS price right now. I think it's 60 euro per ton CO2, and that is actually not. Uh, I mean, that's not a bad thing. I mean, we want the ETS price to to rise because the ETS price will give an incentive to expand renewable energy. It will make renewable energy more competitive compared to fossil fuels. Um, and, and 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 so when when you have an increased ETS price, the states they also have more revenue revenue because they collect they sell ETS allowances, so they collect more revenue, and they can use that revenue to compensate vulnerable people. I think that's that would be a good way to use that revenue since they have more of it right now. Um, I think when it comes to the ETS expansion that you referred to. Um, you know, expanding the ETS to housing and to transport. I think in general it's a good idea. Where we need uh, we need to increase the the uh, the effort, especially on transport. That is uh, an area where we we are not in control. We don't have uh, 
we haven't reduced uh, greenhouse gas emissions like we need to. So we need to really uh, prioritize these areas. But I think at, at the same time, it is incredibly important that we then use the ETS uh, revenue. And that is also a proposal from the Commission that a fourth of the revenue from the new ETS should go into the social climate fund, which should be used to compensate vulnerable uh, consumers. So in general, my main point is that it's okay that the ETS price rises. That's actually on purpose. That's the idea of the ETS system. But at the same time, we need to compensate those who are vulnerable via the ETS revenue, but also the states. They have a massive responsibility in designing that taxation system in a progressive way uh, so that the vulnerable don't pay blind share of the burden here. You need to, as far as I'm concerned, you need to uh, make sure that top income groups are taxed in, uh, in a, a responsible way so that they contribute more than the vulnerable people. Then you can cut taxes for the vulnerable people. Um, and that's the way we can use the tax system to redistribute uh, some of the economic resources. Thank you. Thanks, Niels Volsang. Um, let me um, throw um, uh, another um, area of discussion here. It's about uh, energy poverty and the definition of energy poverty, because currently um, uh, there is no common definition of uh, energy poverty. Uh, each member state has uh, its own uh, at the moment, and that is something that um, well, prevents uh, meaningful uh, action to be taken. Uh, at the EU level. Uh, Dimitri Vern, uh, you said it's an issue that Berg has been working on for many years. Can you maybe uh, tell us um, whether this uh, issue of having a common definition of energy poverty, would that help in your view? Well, yeah, I guess, you know, the, this boils down to the point I was making in my introductory remarks that depending on the approach you take, you know, that 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 drives a bit the policy measures that you will have. So if you consider energy poverty as first and foremost a social issue, you might not tackle the root causes. Um, so, you know, but at the same time, I think we don't need to spend too much time um, focusing on, you know, like uh, this definition, which is a, a difficult debate. Uh, uh, the European Commission in the EED proposal has made uh, quite quite a good uh, definition proposal linking the level of income and the inability to keep your home warm, but also to um, fulfill basic needs such as cooking, for instance. Um, I think this is a bit of the combination of both, which needs to be taken to, to, to understand both the social aspect and the infrastructural uh, energy one. So that's how I would um, put it. Um, our, our members have been working uh, on this as well in the in the framework of this um, of the project. Um, uh, Baiba was referring to on um, energy poverty at this Horizon 2020 project. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe she will be able to complement because it's also very much as um, also. Um, other speakers said a very uh, local um, local issue. So you need to to ensure a bit of flexibility as well to to cater in this uh, local uh, dimension. 
Thanks, Dimitri. Uh, so let me turn, therefore, to Baiba Miltovic. Uh, maybe you can uh, share a few more uh, of your thoughts about um, the need or not for a common definition of energy poverty and, and whether that reflects, uh, reflects the, different, uh, the disparities among the member states. Yes, thank you. Uh, I think the question is really relevant and it is uh, topical for many years, I would say. Uh, it's, not, it's not the first year we're talking about that. Uh, and uh, we really need uh, not only common definition, but we need coordinated actions at EU level, not only uh, in the remits of consumer movement organizations, but we need coordinated actions at EU uh, institutional level and apart from that we need common uh, energy poverty definition we need to see that in national energy and climate plans energy poverty is recognized because in many cases we made analysis you you can't see really proper uh, addressing to the problem so we need to look at uh, at all these comprehensive documents that they need to reflect reality that is existing and there is another thing uh, that uh, that uh, Dimitri mentioned uh, about uh, being placed the energy poverty in the social policy. And we need to understand uh, that at the member states level, social pol policy is treated separately. There are separate ministries, separate uh, infrastructure, uh, uh, institutional setting that is dealing with this issue. But energy poverty is more than the social issue. It is also energy issue. It's also economical issue. Uh, it is also uh, it is also labor. It, it is it's broader social dimension, because person can be energy vulnerable for for limited time. It it doesn't mean that it will it will be uh, lasting for all his or her life. It can be for limited time, uh, while while there is an employment situation, for example. So we need to see at this issue at holistic approach, not in a silo, you know, uh, dealing it in, in on, only in the social policy remit. And another thing that is very important uh, that coordinating actions really can help to raise society's uh, awareness and understanding what is happening right now uh, if we talk about climate changes and also need for uh, for green transition, because I would say that uh, there are we are lacking of this uh, society's awareness, and there is big gap in between perception and reality. Perception of green deal, perception of um, I must say sometimes we are living in this uh, European bubble, but from the other side is this reality that remains uh, and this perception and uh, reality remi remains really wide. Um, and in reality, I would like to come back again to the statistical data that uh, that only 20% of, uh, of renewable energy is uh, constituting in the energy mix. So there are many tasks that we need to do, but the first one is coordinated action that integrates this uh, common energy poverty definition uh, that is not existing uh, at, at, at today. 
Thanks a lot. Uh, maybe let me turn now to Masha Smirnova for um, uh, your thoughts on uh, this debate about whether energy poverty needs a definition actually at uh, the EU level or not. Do you think this is something that would help and how do you think uh, it should be approached? Uh, yes, I think it would help, but it's good if the definition remains broad. Um, because uh, it also needs to be refined by uh, member states, say by local governments, according to their own national circumstances. Um, and that also uh, needs to take into account uh, local realities, uh, especially also uh, the fact that uh, we have uh, uh, very recurrent heat waves in uh, southern Europe and that cooling poverty, for example, is an issue in some countries more than the others. Um, so um, the, the, um, the way to approach it would really uh, be to take the social, the, the social indicators, the socioeconomic indicators, but also combine those with the uh, uh, housing energy performance and energy consumption. Um, some countries have a type of household vulnerability index, uh, Portugal, for example, that really reflects uh, the, the, the multiple dimensions. And I think that that should also stay a, a, a leeway to, to refine the, the, the broad indicators that we need uh, at European level. And I also want to say that uh, uh, maybe as a, as a transition from the discussion on ETS, that uh, actually strengthening the, the, the energy uh, poverty, that's where the approach is actually very patchy in uh, the national climate and energy plans through the European Social Fund uh, is really also something that, that is an enabling factor to, to, to strengthen the social dimension and, uh, and, and uh, stronger cooperation with the, with the, with the local level in, in uh, tackling the issue. Thanks very much. Uh, let me turn now to Mrs. Tessarova for um, your reflections about the need for a common definition uh, of energy poverty. It's something that the Commission has refrained from doing until, uh, I believe, uh, recently. So uh, is it possible, in your view, to have a definition of energy poverty at the European level that also takes into account the diverging situations uh, of the member states? Okay, thank you very much. Um, um, so from, from the Commission side, I can, uh, um, I can confirm that the Commission indeed proposed the definition of energy poverty in the review of the Energy Efficiency Directive. And it is a very broad definition because indeed it's not possible to be exhaustive. And um, so, so the definition is on the table and hopefully should, um, uh, should help, uh, but it's certainly not the objective to capture all the specificities and we will never be able to do that. For example, we use 13 indicators to define energy poverty and different countries um, stand differently in each of these indicators. So we cannot define energy poverty in one way because it's a complex, um, complex thing. And uh, so that's why the Commission proposed a very generic definition, uh, which should be acceptable for everyone without trying to tell member states what exactly energy poverty must be. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Adela Tessarova. Let me pick up now on uh, a few questions uh, coming from the audience. Uh, and the one that has got the most uh, votes, because we have an internal voting system, 
uh, is a question about uh, the prices that um, electricity companies uh, charge uh, their consumers. Uh, so uh, we have uh, here uh, one of our um, viewers uh, who is from R Romania um, and uh, he says uh, regulators uh, should um, force energy companies to align their selling prices to the cost, to the cost of production. And so he cites uh, an example in Romania of a company called Hydroelectrica which uh, charges a price which is 10 times higher their production cost. Is that uh, something, in your view, uh, that needs to be addressed by regulators? And maybe we can turn to the consumer uh, groups uh, first. Bajba um, uh, Miltovica, maybe um, you would want to say a few words uh, about this? Of course, uh, of course, we need to react, and we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, stay silent. And I think there is also energy regulators' role uh, that is, uh, for example, uh, responsible for looking at capital uh, capital reinvestment uh, shares, and um, and there is also role of uh, of uh, consumer movement as watchdogs to look at the situation and share this uh, bad practice, I would say, uh, and to find the again uh, coordinated actions because. If this practice is today in one country, most probably it will be visible in other countries uh, in, in next uh, next days. So there should be coordinated action. There should be coordinated response. Uh, there should be role of uh, of uh, national energy regulators and also I would say the SEER, which is uh, European Energy Regulators uh, Council, that can. Uh, really uh, come up with uh, more uh, more recommendations how to deal with this situation but uh, of course uh, coordinated action is the key uh, key issue I would say thank you uh, Dimitri Vern maybe uh, a few thoughts uh, on your end when it comes to how much electricity companies can uh, charge their consumers related to their cost is that something you believe regulators should uh, um, intervene on? Well, uh, I would very much echo what uh, Baiba just said. Uh, in this sensitive period with price surges, it's extremely important that regulators keep uh, you know, close look at the market and sanction abuses. We've seen in some countries, I don't know about this Romanian example, but we've seen in, in some countries, some um, electricity providers taking advantage of the price surge to, um, to, um, to increase their prices uh, at an acceptable level. And, uh, and this is something that um, our, um, our network of consumer organizations has been closely looked at. And we've also uh, spoken to the European Commission ahead of this, um, the presentation of this toolbox uh, of last October uh, to, you know, mitigate energy prices uh, increase. And, uh, and I think that was also a strong uh, line in the co Commission's uh, communication. Uh, be careful about uh, ab potential abuses on the market. And beyond this, I'd say, you know, there there is also all the series of short-term measures we need in this period to make sure that consumers are not harmed too much by uh, these uh, prices increases. And that here I would mention, you know, and that's particularly relevant, of course, for energy poor people, ban on disconnections. 
you know, or um, reduction of taxation. Um, these are things which really need to uh, to be implemented at national level uh, to make sure that uh, you know you mitigate as much as possible the short-term uh, impact uh, for consumers on this of this uh, energy prices search. Thanks, Dimitri Verne. Uh, another question from the audience, which maybe I could direct at Masha Smirnova uh, from Eurocities. Um, it's a question from uh, Mike Parr, who's an energy consultant. Um, and he, he says uh, a solution to rural energy poverty um, uh, is community energy schemes, something that was introduced uh, in the last um, clean energy package. He says the development of these uh, energy community schemes are constrained by uh, regulatory and, and market measures plus uh, rules which are implemented by network operators. Um, and so he's suggesting that uh, Fit for 55 package should uh, somehow try to address this. Uh, Masha Smirnova, do, do you believe there is indeed uh, an issue? Do you perceive uh, here as well that there are still regulatory barriers um, uh, uh, standing in the way of the creation of these uh, energy communities? Uh, yes, of course they are, and this is, I think, uh, uh, is 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 uh, uh, equally uh, an issue at, at urban level. I mean, we have energy poverty is is a, is a phenomenon ac across uh, all territories. So uh, it is it is very important also to. Uh, uh, to work on, on on reducing those barriers, but but again, cities uh, don't always have competence in doing that. This is why multi uh, the multi level governance approach is so important. Um, so uh, uh, what uh, what is also often a, 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 a inhibiting factor is that that uh, measures cannot be sufficiently rolled out at scale, and this is uh, is what I said. We have to look. It more closely because, uh, uh, for example, there is a very good examples with the solar energy, but this is a relatively easy technically. But when it comes to other solutions, there is much more barriers, and there's also lack of access to finance. Um, that uh, that that cities are uh, uh, not uh, not having in in the regard to really uh, accelerate the, the the needed transition. So uh, it is very important that. Uh, also, this long-term investments I encourage, uh, and this is why also the, the, the upcoming revision of the EU fiscal rules is, is important in that respect. Thanks, Masha Smirnova. Let me stay uh, with you for uh, another question uh, coming from the audience, uh, coming from Guido Dernbauer. Uh, I guess this is something that applies mostly to, to cities. He says mostly uh, tenants are affected by energy poverty. Uh, but they have no influence on uh, their type of, of heating systems. Um, and he's asking what strategies are there to take the homeowners into their obligation to change heating system? Actually, it's not an obligation at the moment. Uh, but uh, Masha Smirnova, do you have a uh, reflection about this? Um, yes, I mean this is a classical issue of uh, of, of split incentives uh, that uh, that is especially affecting cities where we already have a affordability affordability uh, crisis uh, um, where uh, uh, actually most of the building stock is is, is mixed uh, ownership and this is a, this is creates of course barriers in 
accelerating uh, uh, energy efficiency measures. I think we need a stronger, uh, stronger regulatory measures also coming from the EU level in the in the upcoming regulations. It's the same. It's the same issue elsewhere also because if we don't have uh, uh, strong regulations, strong national obligations also that that uh, that can be followed through, some of the measures that cities are doing would be in vain. I mean, this is the, for instance, the case with the CO2 standards. I mean, doing low emission zones uh, without having more stringent standards would would be would not be as effective. So uh, we need uh, more stringent regulation, minimum energy performance standards for, uh, for for homeowners. And it is very important that uh, the renovation wave is also uh, 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 considers the, 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 the uh, vulnerable groups that uh, that uh, there are no uh, hikes in, in uh, in rental prices that could potentially lead to evictions uh, or renovations, as some, some would call it. Thanks. Uh, let me turn maybe to Mrs. Tesorova for um, a reflection on, on what we just heard. Uh, do you think, um, or maybe you can explain uh, the kind of incentives which the Commission uh, has put forward as part of the Fit for 55 package to try and incentivize homeowners to, uh, to change their heating systems, uh, and especially uh, for the tenants, because um, like uh, Masha Smirnova said, there are split incentives. Um, so what has uh, the Commission put in place to try and address this issue? Okay, thank you very much. Um, so the Energy Efficiency Directive, as we already discussed earlier, um, prioritizes energy savings uh, in uh, for the energy poor, a vulnerable social housing. So that's one uh, important uh, element. Um, when it comes to addressing split incentives and the tenant owner situation, I think the biggest um, relevance is with the energy performance of buildings directive, which the commission is still reviewing and we hope to present a proposal next week. So I cannot comment in detail on what uh, finally the directive will uh, be able to do, but this is a typical, uh, typical issue, you know, what are the, for example, energy certificates demanded for? We have them for selling uh, real estate, but for renting real estate. And uh, what were rules we put in place on for the energy performance of, um, of, of properties? So I think this is really for the EPBD. Um, um, yeah, maybe if I can have a little, uh, little remark on the previous question, um, when we spoke about the energy, uh, energy communities, why the Commission didn't address energy communities in the Fit for 55 package. The reason was that um, the legislation that governs energy communities is very recent, and both in the energy Renewables Directive and in the Electricity Directive, this legislation entered into effect at the end of last year. So it was not possible for the Commission to review the legislation before we know the effects of it. Uh, but we pay a lot of attention uh, to energy communities and, um, and to help uh, interested people navigate the, um, the rather complex uh, environment for the moment. Uh, we are starting with the, with the support from Parliament, actually. We are starting a work on a repository of energy communities across the EU so that we have a better understanding of what's going on, where energy communities and under what conditions prosper and what are the barriers for them. So we hope that we will be able to help those interested in this way. Thank you. 
Thank Mrs. Tresserova. Uh, Niels Volsang, maybe um, a reflection from your side about this issue of split incentives um, when it comes to either renovation or replacing uh, old heating systems. Uh, it's, it's something that's been around for many years already, uh, as far as I can remember. Uh, people campaigning for uh, renovation have been uh, flagging uh, this issue. What are your views about this and um, how do you think it could be addressed at the European level? Yes, I think um, it is indeed a, a problem, uh, the split incentives of, of those who own the buildings and those who rent uh, apartments in the buildings that um, they don't always have the same interests when it comes to, to renovations. Um, you know, in Denmark, we've seen actually um, equity funds taking over um, apartment buildings and, um, and renovating them with the purpose of raising the rent, I think it's called. I think it was referred to as, as renovations earlier. Um, and the result was that those who live there cannot live there anymore because the, the, the rent is now too high so some richer people will, will move in into these flats and that's certainly something we don't want we don't want either that uh, we have landlords who don't renovate at all uh, because it's expensive for the landlord but and the tenants will save money uh, when it comes to the energy bill but the landlord doesn't care about that so I think we need to, um, how do we deal with, with that? So that my point is there could be different split incentives in different directions. Um, how do we deal with that? I think we should, I think it's right that in Article 8 of the new uh, directive proposal that we make sure that the energy saving effort is directed uh, proportionally at the uh, energy poor people at the vulnerable consumers and then I think that we could consider making some more hardcore requirements uh, when it comes to uh, the landlords uh, the, the the owners of the buildings uh, of social housing buildings for example that, that these these buildings needs to be renovated um, and uh, the owners of the property has a responsibility here um, and it's not just a goal or an ambition, maybe it should be a hardcore or hardcore demand. And, and if we can incorporate, incorporate that into the directive, I think that's, uh, that's something that I will be looking at um, when I'm, I'm writing my, my amendments to the directive. Thanks, Niels Fulsang. Uh, let me turn uh, again to Dimitri Verne now for uh, a question about, um, it's related to the toolbox, I suppose, that the European Commission presented um, a few weeks ago uh, to address uh, rising energy prices. Uh, the Commission highlighted both short-term and, and long-term solutions. And in the short-term, indeed, uh, there's a consensus uh, that uh, vulnerable households and consumers uh, will need uh, financial support uh, from uh, national governments, essentially. Um, uh, but that, uh, in effect, uh, also uh, actually means subsidizing fossil fuels because uh, these are people who usually will run you know, gas boilers or maybe uh, coal or, or, or oil boilers, um, uh, which is obviously contrary to the long-term objective 
which is to promote renewables and, uh, and energy efficiency. So, uh, Dimitri Vern, what are your views on uh, ways, uh, potentially, of, of solving uh, this contradiction? Is it something that we just need to uh, live with uh, during the transition? Well, I think we need to take a very pragmatic approach, right? Uh, there are people who, who need or have oil or gas boilers uh, to heat their homes, and there is no possible way that they will change them in the very um, near future. So for these people, we need support measures, we need tax reductions, we need maybe ban on disconnections or, um, you know, lump sum payments, even as uh, some member states already did. But that is, for me, not at all a contradiction uh, with our longer term goals, which is to move away uh, from uh, fossil fueled heating systems. And there, I, I, I would maybe re refer to a study which we published um, about like at, at the end of, um, of, of November, where we really show that the switch to heat pumps combined with housing, housing retrofit will really make a lot of financial sense for consumers. And we conducted this study, this total cost of ownership study. So looking at the upfront cost of, for instance, buying a heat pump versus a hydrogen boiler, which is seen as a future by the gas industry of, uh, of, uh, of boilers. Um, and uh, so upfront costs and running costs. And we really, uh, the, the demonstration is clear. Uh, switching to heat pumps will enable people to make savings. And especially in countries such as Poland and Czechia, where we did the study and where um, heating uh, costs are uh, more important than uh, in other countries. Uh, so uh, we need both short-term measures, short-term protection measures, and the best way to shield consumers in the long term against energy price spikes is uh, to move away from fossil fuels and uh, increase our energy efficiency efforts. So no contradiction for me. Uh, both should uh, go hand in hand. Thanks, Dimitri Vern. Uh, let me uh, maybe put the question now to Masha Smirnova. Uh, do you believe uh, there is a, a contradiction between short-term support measures, which are effectively uh, fossil fuel subsidies uh, uh, in effect, and, uh, and the long-term objective, which is to promote renewables? Um, how do you see that um, apparent contradiction uh, from uh, your perspective uh, at EuroCities, and how do you believe uh, it, it could be addressed? Well, I think we, we, we do have to, to have the, the, the long-term view that, uh, that uh, uh, we need to f really phase out uh, fossil fuel subsidies because still each year <laughs> across the globe, half a trillion of, 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 of euros uh, go into uh, subsidizing fossil fuels. But I think um, uh, uh, in the context of the, of the, of the current uh, uh, recovery, it's very important that uh, uh, we, we really uh, strengthen also the, the positive elements that we have seen and that local level is implementing. And uh, this uh, is also, uh, uh, these are also uh, uh, measures to lead to more energy independency, more participative models, because we have seen so many local solidarity initiatives, models that are essential for tenants to work together, for example, with the public housing companies. Uh, so while it is not a good thing to, to, to subsidize consumption of fossil fuels, I think 
we need to take a pragmatic approach, but we need to, to, to really use also the opportunity that the current uh, revision presents to us uh, to accelerate together with the local level and all those models that already exist that shift away from the actually subsidizing fossil fuel consumption and make communities more independent uh, to make them work together. Thanks, Mrs. Smirnova. Uh, Niels Fulsang, maybe uh, a reflection about uh, this um, uh, apparent contradiction between short and long-term measures. Uh, do you think this is something that regulators simply need to accept, that there's no way, there's no way around it? No, I, I don't think there is necessarily a contradiction. I think we need to think about the long-term right away um, and I mean that would also be good for the for the short, short term. I think we, if we accept new investments in fossil fuels, or keeping on having subsidy schemes, uh, that will hurt us in, in the long run. Um, and so I think we we need to think about how to in the in the short run and in the long run just get away from the fossil fuels. I I belong to to the group of to a group of. of of thinkers who who um, who think that uh, we you know having this trend having these kind of transitional fuels going from coal to gas or oil to gas, I mean why not just go directly from uh, coal to renewable energy and just I mean what is the excuse of not just expanding massively on on wind turbines and uh, solar energy? And heat pumps and so on. We have a lot of the solutions. I don't think it's a very good argument to say, oh, we need to take one step to gas and then we need to take another step in some years to renewable energy. We don't, first of all, we don't have the time to do it. Second, we risk making a, a very bad investment because we have a lot of stranded assets that we can't use in, in, uh, in, in, in a few years. Um, so I don't think it will help anybody not the climate, certainly not the climate, and not the economy either. Thanks, Neil Fulsang. Uh, Masha Smirnova, you just uh, asked the floor, you want to make an additional point. No, I just wanted to add a point to what Neil said, that, that uh, this, there is a big elephant in the room, of course, that stays and that is hotly debated, and this is the issue of the uh, EU taxonomy for sustainable investments and and. Uh, it's uh, counterproductive to see specific fuels as transitionary fuels. And I completely agree with Niels that uh, we need to shift to renewables. That's actually a much cheaper form of energy now, but also considerably step up public uh, investments. And I think there's a really a clear risk on the, on the uh, if we make a mistake now, that we really lock in this fossil fuel subsidized unsustainably on a very long term. And uh, this will be a, a very unfair point, even if it sh solves some short-term issues, but the future generation will dearly pay for that. And we should really avoid this from happening. Mrs. Tessarova, maybe um, a final reflection about uh, this uh, discussion about uh, short-term versus long-term uh, and whether uh, there's an apparent contradiction or not. Uh, how has the European Commission approached uh, this? Can you maybe expand a bit on that? 
Okay, well, thank you. Um, I think the Commission was clear in the toolbox on um, high energy prices that, um, you know, the direction of travel is, uh, is uh, let's say, it's the long term uh, structural measures. It's the Green Deal, which reduces our dependencies on fossil fuels, and uh, which is also a way how to eradicate energy poverty, as discussed this morning. Um, in the short term, and when I say short term, this is very short term, talking this winter. Um, and while we are continuing with the structural measures and we are trying to speed them up as much as possible, it might be inevitable that certain citizens need help. And of course, these are fossil fuel subsidies and EU is committed to phase them out. Um, but we are talking about a, a, a harsh winter. We are talking about, you know, people need to heat their homes. And so in the short term, the Commission encouraged member states to use any additional revenues they have, and they do have them, for example, from the ETS um, market, to support these citizens. And of course, it is not to, um, to um, keep these citizens dependent on fossil fuels for long term. This is just to ha help them overcome this emergency situation and, um, and the structural measures, the uh, structural investments, of course, need to be speeded up so that we don't have to do the same next winter. Thank you. Right, thanks uh, everyone. I think we're reaching now uh, the end of this conference, but before we close, uh, let me ask each one of you to summarize in a few words uh, the main message that you would want our, our audience to take home with them. What would it be? Uh, and let me start with Dimitri Verne, because I understand that you need um, uh, to leave uh, a little bit early. Thank you very much, Frédéric. Well, uh, it's a difficult debate to summarize, but I I'd say, you know, the takeaway is really uh, let's use the opportunity of all the legislation that we'll have at the moment, the EED, the RED. Adela mentioned the upcoming revision of the EPPD um, directive to really um, introduce these structural measures which will tackle the root causes of energy poverty and which will put us on the right path. And I would just pick up on the very important point made by Niels and Masha on, on um, investing in the right technology. Let, I fully agree with that. Let's avoid um, you know investments in uh, transitional fuels that will only lock people in expensive and carbon intensive heating system for uh, the foreseeable future. You know, let's switch as much as possible to uh, electrification, for instance. That might be a bit more costly um, uh, in terms of upfront cost, but will uh, help us make a lot of savings and reach our climate goals much more quickly in the long run. So we need this long-term approach also um, uh, on this technology debate. And thanks again for this uh, nice discussion. Thanks, Dimitri. Uh, let me turn now to Masha Smirnova for um, your concluding thoughts. Yes, I think we need to use uh, all uh, possible levers that we have to accelerate uh, this transition. And we need to make sure that uh, the, the green transition is, is, is also progressive of all social groups and, and takes into consideration the need of vulnerable households. I, I, I slightly prefer to talk about vulnerable households than consumers. Because looking at some social groups, maybe they are not born consumers, thinking about the high level of, of uh, 
child poverty, for example, that we have in Europe. But maybe that's that, that, that's a separate debate, and that is also something that uh, that can be discussed uh, uh, in in the in the uh, upcoming co-legislation process. So uh, uh, we think that it will be also extremely important that all obligations on member states are not watered down in the revisions, and at the contrary, that reinforced. Um, and uh, uh, I think in uh, the scope of what we're discussing today, it is uh, it will be also very much worth looking and member states should be invited uh, to look very closely to the council recommendation of forthcoming country of addressing the social and employment impacts of uh, the, the green transition, because there will be also a set of measures uh, uh, from EU national and local levels that that that, that can be uh, collectively reinforced. Thanks, uh, Masha. Uh, Niels Fulsang, um, uh, you need to leave earlier as well, so maybe we can have your concluding thoughts. Or maybe, actually, Niels has already left. Uh, so let me uh, ask Baiba uh, Miltovitsa for your concluding words. I think you're muted, uh, so we can't hear you. I'm sorry, yes. Yes. I have this habit now we can of hear mute you. and unmute. Yes, thank you. So thank you for giving uh, this, uh, for the conclusion, uh, the last sentences. And, and, and we need to really look at uh, what kind of instruments are already in our hands that we can use and use it in more effective way to elevate energy poverty by facilitating access to renewable energy and also renewable energy appliances that are in many cases needed for the energy poor uh, citizens. Furthermore, we need to look at how public authorities can steer building renovation schemes more effectively, because as I mentioned, and also we heard from other speakers, schemes so far doesn't work uh, if you talk about renovation wave or renovation rates in residential sector. I'm not talking about public, I'm talking about the residential sector. We need to think uh, how we can better decarbonize the heating and cooling systems in our, uh, in our uh, societies and also think about, uh, think about vulnerable households at local level uh, and think about coordinated actions and uh, coordinated one energy poverty but wider definition. Thank you very much. Thanks. And so to conclude uh, now, let me pass the floor to Mrs. Adela Tessarova. Uh, thank you, Frederick. And thanks to everyone uh, for, uh, for very useful uh, remarks. Um, uh, nothing major to add from my side. I would just maybe say that let's use this opportunity when energy poverty is finally a priority and let's uh, deploy all the tools we have in the energy policy to eradicate it you know we cannot resolve the underlying social issues with energy policy but we can actually uh, address energy poverty at the core and we can get rid of it once and forever so let's do it and let's use this opportunity we have now when everybody talks about it thank you thanks very much Adela Tesarova I think this wraps up uh, today's event a big thanks to PKE for supporting it. Uh, thanks to our speakers, of course, for the time uh, that you took to be with us today and uh, to our audience for following us. 
If you've missed the beginning of this debate, you can watch it again on social media and YouTube. And if you, if you would like to know more about upcoming events at Euractiv, just check our website, events.euractiv.com, for more. We hope to see you again soon. In the meantime, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye.